It's great to see everybody this morning. Beautiful fall day here in the panhandle of Florida. Welcome everyone here in the worship center at our Nine Mile campus. Welcome to those of you that have gathered together in the worship center at Hillcrest Spanish Trail. And welcome to those of you that are tuning in wherever you may be this morning, watching us online on our website or on Facebook Live. It's great to have everybody with us this morning, and it's great to worship the Lord. Hey, listen, as our guys are finishing up, one public service announcement this morning, if that's okay, as our guys finish taking up our offering, we're going to designate one month from today, which will be uh, Sunday, I believe it's the 4th of November, as a budget catch-up Sunday. Most of you watch the numbers in the worship guide. We're a little bit behind. The, beautiful, the good news is we've got more money coming in than we ever have before. We're dividing it this year among four places. Some of our income goes to our ministry budget, which is the largest part of what we do financially as a church, over $5 million ministry budget here at Hillcrest. And then there's about $2.5 million over and above that that's going to our welcome initiative projects. If you come back next week, I'll give you an up-to-the-minute report about the three major projects that are either ongoing now or will be ongoing in the immediate future. We've taken those 10 projects that we have presented earlier this year, and we're focusing on three of them primarily right now. And it'll take me a little bit longer than I've got time this morning, so I'll update you a little bit more on that this time next week. And then we've also got people faithfully giving to debt retirement, as you can notice, as well as giving, of course, to missions, which is a very vital part of our life together. And so we've got lots of giving, very generous giving. We're thankful for that. But we want to make sure as we go into the last two months of the year, which is our strongest two-month of giving period of the year, that we're in good shape. So what we want to do is narrow that gap a little bit. It's about a $300,000 gap. And so on the first Sunday of November... One month from today, budget catch-up Sunday. And, of course, our goal will be $300,000 on that day, and that will help us significantly narrow, if not totally eradicate that as we go into the month of December so that we can focus on necessary projects that we have going into the first of the year. So does that make sense to everybody? This will be just a special one-Sunday emphasis to help narrow that revenue. Let me just say, too, by the way, that what you see in the bulletin has nothing to do with expenses. That has everything to do with income. So that doesn't mean that we've overspent our budget by $300,000. Did everybody hear me say amen? Now, it doesn't matter how many times I say that. About half of you are going to go out of here thinking that's the case, but it's not. That's where we are relative to what we need in terms of revenue for the point in time of the year. Now, if we spend our budget... Uh, by the end of the year, we would have spent more than $300,000 more, but we're not spending our budget. We are controlling our budget, and we have our great administrative team to make sure that we're doing really good in terms of income and expenses, all right? So that's a revenue deficit, not an expense overage. Everybody hear me say amen. We're doing really well financially. We're just a little bit behind where we need to be, all right? So Sunday, November the 4th, Budget Catch-Up Sunday. More about that in the days ahead. Now it's time to preach God's Word, which is what you came here for. Somebody say amen. We're in Acts chapter 19 this morning, so join me 
again uh, in this great study of Paul's missionary's journey. I love the book of Acts. I hope that that's been transparent. I think it's the most exciting book in all of the Bible. We're in uh, the concluding stages now of Paul's third missionary journey, the third of his three defined missionary journeys that Luke records for us in the book of Acts. And one of the things that's pretty obvious is that the further the gospel has spread away from Jerusalem, where the gospel was first preached, the farther and farther it gets spread away out into Judea, into Samaria, up to Antioch, and then to the uttermost part of the world, the farther the gospel spreads from Jerusalem and Judea, the more it collided with cultures that were marked and dominated by idolatry. Greco-Roman world, of course, was a wash in a sea of idols. We learned that and probably saw that most uh, astutely in Paul's visit to Athens where there were over 30,000 identified gods who were worshiped there. And today we're going to look again and join again the Apostle Paul uh, as we take a dramatic look at what can happen when the gospel and idolatry collide. And when the gospel is being faithfully preached, you do know that it's always going to collide with the demon of idolatry. And that's pretty pronounced here in the magnificent city of Ephesus where Paul was spending almost three years of this third missionary journey. You know, the thing about Jesus, I'm sure you've noticed it, but the thing about Jesus is that where Jesus is present, the status quo is always upset. You ever notice that? Well, and it doesn't matter where it is. When Jesus shows up, he's always going to upset the apple cart. He's always going to upset the status quo. That's the whole point, by the way, of what Jesus did twice as recorded in the Gospels when he went into the temple and saw basically that the temple had been given over to idolatry. And he starts kicking over tables and pulls out a whip of cords and driving money changers out because the demon of the idolatry of money had captivated what was supposed to be a house of prayer. Well, that's what Jesus always does. Most particularly when he confronts you in your life and where you are. You remember what Jesus said in Luke 14? Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? I have not come to bring peace, but rather a sword, rather division. Now, that's a statement of practical reality, but it seems strange coming from the one that the Old Testament writer referred to as the prince of peace. And Jesus does bring peace into the heart and into the individual life of the one who responds to him with faith and follows him and surrenders him uh, to him as Savior and Lord. But Jesus and his coming to earth brought inevitable division when Jesus confronts idolatry, wherever that may be, whatever the shape or form may be, he's always going to rattle people's cages. He's always going to upset the status quo, which is something that has to happen. If people are going to realize the kind of bondage that they're in, their need to be freed from that sin, their opportunity to be freed from that sin and bondage, and from the idolatry that enslaves them. Do you remember the day that Jesus came in and upset your life? If you do, you ought to say amen because it was the greatest day of your life when he did. So Jesus 
upsets and disturbs all that's wrong with life. And this is exactly what we see happening in Ephesus when at, at, at just about the time Paul's preparing to leave, he's going to leave Ephesus, he's going to go back over to the region of Achaia, what we know as modern Greece. He's going to revisit the cities of Macedonia, going to go back to Corinth for a little bit and make an important visit there. But just about that time, trouble begins to brew in the streets of Ephesus because of the impact that the gospel, the very gospel that Paul was preaching, was having in that important city. Can we read about it this morning? Acts chapter 19, look beginning in verse 23. Who's ready to read? Say amen. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul, this Paul, has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were what? Enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Do I have to remind you this morning that there in Ephesus, the religious and economic ground zero of that important city was the incredible temple of Artemis. Sometimes she's known as Diana in the Roman form. Artemis was a fertility goddess, and she's often known as the mother goddess of all nature. Whenever you see Artemis, you usually see a bunch of animals around her. She was the nature goddess. They looked at her as being the goddess responsible for all of life itself. Everything that they could see, everything that they enjoyed came from the providential hand, not of the creator God, but of Artemis. And the temple that her statue stood in, I'm not sure I can describe just how big it was. It was colossal. Scholars tell us that it was four times larger than the temple of Athena, known as the Parthenon, setting high upon the Acropolis in Athens. Four times larger even than the Parthenon. It was considered one of the ancient wonders of the world, alongside the pyramids of Egypt. And you know, so great were the offerings. People came from all over Asia to worship there. And they would bring offerings with them, speaking of offerings. The offerings, the temple of Diana, were so great that they had to turn it into a depository. And so the temple of Artemis was not only a religious center, it was also the most prolific bank in the world of Asia. People would make deposits there and make withdrawals and take out 
alone. So the Temple of Diana, ground zero, the most important icon in the whole city, popular religious center, popular financial center. And it was this temple, of course, in the Artemis cult that it served that formed the backdrop of what Luke refers to here as no little disturbance. And once again, the controversy has to do with the impact and the effectiveness of what Luke calls the way. Now, you know what the way was, don't you? We're the way. We, we are the people of God, the way of Jesus Christ. That was a euphemism for the gospel. So the gospel had been taking great root. It had been pushing back the darkness. Paul had been preaching there in the hall of Tyrannus for two years. And people were coming to Christ, and from the hall of Tyrannus, missionaries were being sent to places like Laodicea and Colossa, places like Pergamum and Philadelphia and Sardis. That's how all those churches got started. Most of them, if not all of them, came as a result of gospel preaching that was taking place in the most important city of Asia by the Apostle Paul, namely Ephesus. And the gospel was so effective, it was starting to have an economic impact there in the city. This is a collision that's taking place between two different ways, the way of Christ and the way of Ephesus, the collision of two roads, two paths. You have the Christian way and the Ephesian way. You have the way of heaven and the way of the world. You have the way of the gospel and the way of pagan idolatry. Jesus taught about that in the Sermon on the Mount. There is a broad road that leads to what? Destruction, and many find it. That's the way of the Ephesians. And then there is a what? Narrow road that leads to life. That's the way of Christ, and that's at play here in Ephesus. The principal rabble-rouser is a guild leader named Demetrius. He probably is the leader of the local silversmiths' union, and he's just had it with Paul, and he's had it with this gospel. He's had it with this capital W way for years. He probably learned it from his father, who learned it from his father. They'd been making silver shrines of the goddess Artemis, silver shrines of the temple of Diana that people could come and purchase and use in their homes, these little idols, miniatures as it were. They would take them home and use them as objects of worship in their home. So it was obviously a lucrative business because, I mean, to me anyway, when I read this passage, and even a cursory reading should indicate to you that Demetrius is far more. Now, he mentions his concern about, uh, about Artemis. He's, he mentions his concern about her reputation. He mentions his concern about the civic pride of the city. But make no mistake, his principal concern is his pocketbook. He's concerned about his own personal wealth. So he might worship Artemis, but that's not the biggest God of his life. The biggest idol of this man's life is his money. So rather than adapt to changing economic times, which is what you're supposed to do when the economy changes, he does what any of us in America would do. We form a mob. Somebody say amen. I've been watching about mobs for the last month on my news broadcast. Let's just form a mob. I mean, but make no mistake, it's all about the money. It's like 
H.L. Mencken wrote many years ago, the great columnist said, listen, when they say it's not about the money, it's about the money. And this is about the money. And just two years was all it took. That's what I love about the gospel. I'm telling you, when you're faithful in preaching the gospel, you're faithful in living the gospel. It's not going to take long for it to take root. Paul had only been preaching there for a couple of years. And now I'm telling you, the gospel spread all over the world and it's totally shaken up this city. It's beginning to roll like a wave through Ephesus as it had through many cities of the Roman world. And that was a threat because it started to affect their bottom line. But they work up a mop. They appeal to the base instincts of depraved human beings. And the Bible says in verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged. And they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now what I want you to notice for our purposes today is that their principal problem in Ephesus is our principal problem in Pensacola. It's idolatry. It's the principal problem of America. It's the principal problem of the world. The critical spiritual problem of life is substituting other things for Almighty God. And we do it all the time. That's what an idol is. If you're here today and you don't know what an idol is, just remember the word substitute. Say that out loud. Because that's all it is, a substitute for the one true and living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God who is the only God. You substitute anything as the principal object of your love, your tenderness, your affection, anything that captures the loyalty of your life more than God has just become an idol. And it can be what we call even good things. We all should know that. Even good things, which if kept in their proper place, remain good things. If they become God, if you love whatever that is or whomever that may be, whomever or whatever more than God, it's become an idol even if, you, if you're related to it. It doesn't matter. It's a God substitute. And it's always an affront to a holy God which is why he makes this subject the principal object of the first two of the Ten Commandments that he gave to his people through Moses at Sinai. The first two of the Ten Commandments have to do with this very subject. Does that seem coincidental to you? It's the first two of the ten because he knew it would be the predominant impulse of our depraved heart. And so that's why he says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. I'm holy, and a part of my holiness means I don't suffer rivals. You will have, what? No other gods before me. You will not make for yourself any graven image. And so with all that in mind, let me give you today three very important dangers posed by idolatry that might help us better understand why this is such a problem. First of all, idolatry is a problem because it always leads to disappointment. I tell you, I've been following the Lord Jesus Christ since just before my 12th birthday. Can I make a statement? My Lord Jesus has never one time disappointed me, not once. He's never broken a promise. He's never not been there when I've needed him. He's never not given me wisdom when I've asked for it. The Lord Jesus has never disappointed me. But he's the only God that will never disappoint you. 
Idols always promise more than they can deliver. This is why most of the prophets who are dealing with idolatry most of their lives always tend to address the issue in a mocking tone. Jeremiah 10, 14, for example, every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false, and there is no breath in them. This is Jeremiah's way of saying how ridiculous the whole concept of idolatry actually is, as if you could take an inanimate object, whether it's a silver shrine of Artemis or an ivory statue of Artemis or any other god for that matter, or whether it's a $100 bill in your back pocket and think that that God can actually speak to you, minister to you, love you, care for you, provide for you. It's a fool's errand. And the same way our modern idols today, whatever they may be, are exactly the same. They're fraud because they always promise more than they can deliver. If you want to know what the most prevalent idols in American culture are today, <laughs> all you got to do is look at the T-shirts, look at the T-shirts. Just watch the T-shirts that Americans wear. Look at the people that are on the T-shirts, the symbols, the logos. See, our idols today fundamentally, though there will be some in some quarters, but mostly they're not centerpieces on coffee tables. Our idols today are images. They're people or things that can be sported, worn in a way that advertises, this is what's important to me. This is what I get fired up about. This is what I talk about more than anything else. And let me just say, you come into church on Sunday morning, if you talk more about your favorite college football team than you do about the Lord Jesus Christ, something is upside down. It's upside down in life. You can tell what's the object of a person's devotion by typically what they wear. Some people today are covering themselves up today. <laughs> it's okay to wear that stuff. Just don't worship it. Everybody hear me say Amen. But you can tell, man, they talk about it all the time, plaster their office wall with everything, every shade, every color, every dimension. Then it's a good possibility it may be an object of your worship. And again, none of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves, but anytime you put a person or a product or a hobby in the place of God, Anytime you expect those things to make you happy or to solve your problems, I'm just telling you, you're going to end up disappointed sooner rather than later because your team, that team you worship, they're eventually going to lose. And that coach you think can do no wrong, he's going to make a call in the fourth quarter. And then you're going to wonder, how'd this guy ever get in coaching? He made one bad call. Or your favorite politician or political party, they'll raise your taxes and you'll organize an effort to vote them out of office. Or that portfolio that you're basically leaning against as the total support system for the rest of your future, all it takes is one stock market dive and you're in a world of trouble. Or your own body, It'll break down. You'll have a knee injury, hip injury, ankle injury, 
I was listening on the radio the other day to probably the premier ballerina in the United States of the 21st century, and she slipped, just a little slip, and she felt a twinge in her hip. And it's required three surgeries, and she's not able to dance anymore. Just that quick, her whole life changed. See, idols always disappoint. And let me make a statement today. Only Jesus can satisfy for the long haul. So idols will disappoint. Secondly, idolatry leads not only to disappointment, but to domination. Idols not only disappoint you in life, they'll dominate your life if you're not careful. Because really, what is idolatry? Idolatry is an attempt to fashion a God of your own making that you yourself can control. You want to be able to control God. God becomes more manageable. God becomes more controllable if I can reduce God down to an image of some kind or to a product of some kind or to a relationship of some kind. In fact, you remember what God said right out of the gate, Genesis 1-1, when it came to the creation of man, let us make man in our, in our image according to our likeness, right? That's what God said about you. Let me make this person in my image according to my likeness. You know what an idolater says? Let me make God in my image according to my wants and desires. That's what an, that's what an idolater does because it's always easier to change your image of God than it is to conform your life to the God of the Bible and the standards of the God of the Bible. So if God says it's wrong to commit adultery. You know what an idolater does? An, an idolater redefines the understanding of a healthy relationship. And they'll say, oh, it's just a piece of paper. That really doesn't matter. What matters is how I feel. See, that's reducing God down. The relationship becomes your idol because now you've reduced God down to something you can control. Does that make sense? It's too hard for me to obey God's standards. I don't like them. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to refashion God according to my standards. Or God really doesn't care about same-sex relationships. He's just interested in the heart. See, that's what happens. When you want to justify your lifestyle and you want to justify your choice, you know what you do? You just change your theology. You just remind, what you do is you turn God into a golden calf of your own making. That way you can manipulate the idol and convince yourself it's okay. The only problem is it's idolatry. All that is is an attempt at controlling God. When you talk to God, most people are open to a conversation about God, our God, the true and the living God. But most people, if they're open to a discussion about God, they'll want to talk to God or embrace God, but only in certain small doses. People want just enough of God to be blessed. They want the blessing of God without the, the, without the frustration of having to obey God. I really don't want him to run my life. But you know what people are saying? They really don't want God. They want a genie in a bottle. They want a God they can manipulate. They don't want the king of kings. What they want is a burger king because they've adopted this philosophy, have it your way. And so they want a burger king. 
but it's idolatry. It's like the little boy who wanted a new bicycle for Christmas, and he told his mom, you know what I want for Christmas this year? And she said, what? I want a new bicycle. And his mom said, well, I don't know. They're kind of expensive. You probably ought to pray about that. And so he decided he would put his prayer in writing. And so he started writing Jesus a letter. And his first attempt went something like this. He said, dear Jesus, I want a new bicycle. And as you well know, I've been absolutely perfect over the last year. And he paused and he said, you know, all right, that's not true. And so he wads the paper up and he throws it aside. And he goes to a second draft and he says, dear Jesus, as you well know, I've been a good boy most of the time this year. And that caused him pause. And so he thought, well, that's actually not true either. I really haven't been a good boy most of the time. And so he crumples the paper up and he throws it away and he starts on draft number three. And he says, dear Jesus, as you well know, the greatest desire of my life is to be a good boy all the time. And he realized that's not true either. And so he got up as any writer does. It's got blocked from time to time. And he walks around the room and he goes and he sees his family nativity scene. And he starts picking up the pieces and he picks up the image of Mary. And he walks back into his little room and sets down at his desk and puts that image of Mary there. And he goes for his fourth draft. And he says, dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again... See, the boy doesn't know it. He's got an idol problem, man, because that's all he's trying. He's trying to manipulate God. He wants a Burger King. But see, there's a grave danger with trying to do that. And the danger we face whenever we try to control God is that we end up being the one being controlled. The idol ends up dominating us because idols do that. The time you work, that's the problem with Demetrius. I mean, He's being dominated by those very idols that he's supposed to be serving. And that always happens. Whatever you end up loving and worshiping in the place of God, can I just make a statement? It's going to end up running your life. It's going to control your life. And it doesn't matter if it's a person. It doesn't matter if it's a product, an image, an object, or even a statue for that matter. It doesn't matter. There are people today that call that people psychologists look at folks who are in those kinds of relationships and they say, well, that person is codependent. It's not codependency most of the time. It's idolatry. Man, I could say a lot about that because there are a lot of people, maybe even some here today, they're in relationships you don't even need to be in. They're unbiblical, they're ungodly, and when I talk to a lot of people as I have through the years, you know why they're in those relationships? Because they can't stand the thought of being alone for much of their life. And so they compromise the clear teaching of the Word of God to do what they want to do in life in order to satisfy what they think is a need of their life They compromise. That's just an attempt to reduce God down to an image that you can control. More than being codependent, it's idolatry is what it is. And this is what happened in Ephesus. These people are 
totally dominated by their idols. When they were confronted with a gospel that would require them to surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords as a means of receiving the greatest kind of blessing and the greatest kind of life, they rebel because it's a loss of control that they don't want us to relinquish. Look at verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. These are Christian disciples, friends of Paul. Macedonians who were Paul's tra- companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the uh, Asiarchs, these are high-ranking city officials that Paul had befriended. Many of them had come to faith in Jesus Christ. These are well-to-do, well-established folks of Ephesus. When these Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater because they knew his life would be in danger. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion And most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, for about two hours, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Unbelievable scene absolute chaos because what happened is what started with a little rabble rousing going on in the streets soon built up to this massive throng the crowd spilled from the street into the great theater of Ephesus you can by the way when you go to Ephesus you can see the great theater it's still there magnificently preserved built literally into the side of a mountain seated 25,000 people And that place begins to burst with this mob. Paul wants to go in there. He wants to try to talk people off the ledge. His friends won't let him go in because they know it's a fool's errand. And and as is the case with many riots, these people there get caught up in it. Many of them, the Bible says, and this will be no surprise to you, they're in the middle of it. They're protesting. They don't even know what they're protesting which is the case with every mob. You got people there just to be part of the crowd and they're chanting and somebody asks them, hey, what's going on? Oh, we don't know, but isn't it great? They don't even know what they're protesting. But somebody starts the chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Well, they can get into that. So they just start chanting. The next thing you know, this thing is snowballed out of control and what that reveals is these are people who are totally dominated by images that they'd reduce to forms and sizes they could control. But what happened was those little images ended up dominating them. The God you control always ends up controlling you. So idolatry leads to disappointment. It leads to domination. And the reason that's true is because what it does to your character. It leads to deformity. 
to deformity. Idols change you. They warp you. They deform your character whenever you conform to them. And it is an absolute truth that you will tend to become like whatever you love the most. You'll tend to become like whoever or whatever is Lord of your life. And that always will result, if it's not Jesus, it's always going to result in a warped spiritual character. You say, well, why does it have to be the God of the Bible? Because he's the one who made you. You're alive because of the God of the Bible. You've been created in his image, and whenever you worship another image that is not God, your character is warped. There is a great spiritual malfunction. You've sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You remember the story that is told in the Gospels about that rich young man that came to Jesus? And he had a longing in his life. He was an idolater. We just don't figure that out until later in the story. Oh, he was worshiping. He was just worshiping his money. And he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has this brief conversation with him and says, well, one thing you lack, go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. And we're really surprised to see the reaction because we've seen so many that Jesus had called who did that very thing. Zacchaeus comes to mind, you know, a guy that had worshiped money, an idolater who everybody hated, repented, turned away, demonstrated his repentance by giving everything back fourfold. And so we're surprised when we see this reaction, disheartened by the saying, he went away how? Sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, why did Jesus ask this young man to do something so incredibly extreme? Because he knew that an idol was controlling his heart. And his idol, of course, was his money, the things he possessed with money. And so he goes straight to the heart of the issue and says, you know what? You've got an idol in your life. And that idol has deformed your character. So if you want to follow me, if you want God's very best, if you want to understand who God is, you want to understand who you are and where you came from and why you're here and how you're supposed to live and what the whole purpose of life is and where you're going when you die. If you want to know those major questions of life and the answer to those questions, then you've got to give up what you've got in order to get it. And this young wealthy man counted the cost. And he shook his head and he, he said, this is just too high a price. And he went away sad. There was a great collision between the gospel and idolatry. And in that case, the idol ended up winning because it had such a stronghold in his life. You parents who are here today, let me ask you a question. If I were to ask your children today, can you, can you just name some things to me that are important to your mom and dad? I mean, you've observed them for these years now. Tell me some things that you've observed that are really important to your mom and dad. I wonder what your kids would tell me if I asked them that. What would they say? You know, those are questions 
that I tend to ask when I gather together with families before a funeral. I'm trying to get personal information from them. Tell me, especially the person I don't know, tell me a little bit about what was important. What did they do? What did they like? What did they enjoy? These are the kinds of questions, and I get all kinds of answers. Sometimes God is never mentioned. Sometimes he's all they want to talk about. But what would your kids say? What would they tell me? What kind of things would be on that list? Where would God be on, their, on that list? Would, would they say, oh, man, Dad, Dad just loves the Lord. He loves his word. Mom, man, Mom is a saint. We see her praying. We know she prays for us. She's committed to Jesus. I'm saying... As a parent, if I want my children to honor the God who's radically changed my life, a God who loves me and a God that I love so much, man, I've got to model that for my kids to see. They've got to know it. It can't be hidden. Jesus said, you don't put your light under a what? You don't put it under a bush. You'll know I'm going to let it shine. So what are you holding on to? If anything, that's keeping you from fully following Jesus. You holding on to a relationship that's not of God? Are you holding on to a career that you have no business in? You're living in disobedience because God wants you to do something else and you don't want to do it? Or is it a habit, a hobby, personal pleasure? I mean, what are you holding on to that you love more than you love the Lord. Again, those can be all good things. But if any of them owns you, then it's an idol. And heaven help you to see that it's dominating your life, that it's controlling you and it's deforming your character. And I'll tell you what, if you don't deal with it today, it'll eventually disappoint you when it proves to be totally insufficient to giving you the very things that you need most in life, eternal hope and eternal life. What will be left standing in your life when the gospel and idolatry collide? My prayer is only Jesus. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen.